No, no, it's fine. So, uh, uh, oh, it's recording. I didn't hit record. The mark must have. Um, okay. So, um, yeah, so we'll get through those, some things about what, uh, just leading into narcissism today and talk about it, but not in a, not in an intense line-by-line kind of explication of it, which you can get in lots of lectures, even online. Yep. Um, but I want to talk about it from my experience and your experience and how it comes into personal relationships. Um, and then um, after we go through kind of what is narcissism and how to understand it in different models of explanation. That, um, and, I, and then I'd like to get to the point where I talk about how DBT approaches it. And what I was just saying to you is that if you asked 100 DBT therapists, how do you deal with narcissism? you'd get a blank look uh, from a bunch of them because Marsha Linehan from the very beginning said basically her point of view about narcissism was it's just another person with patterns of behavior and mostly the view, points of view about narcissism are that narcissist is that it's a very judgmental term and that we really don't, you know, DBT is not adapted to treat it, but actually People with narcissistic patterns appear in all types of treatments. So I do want to talk some, probably not get to today, but in the future about um, how does D- how does a narcissistic patterns show up in DBT, and and how do we address them? And one of the things that I think is interesting is that because DBT is so behaviorally focused and focuses on pattern after pattern, without assuming where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. but figures that out with each person and each instance <clears throat> and then teaches skills that I think there's probably out of all the skills in the skills manual, there are dozens of them that can really uh, target narcissistic patterns in a very helpful way. And I want to do that and <clears throat> give examples of that. Okay. So, let me just throw you know. just really quickly before we officially, officially start. Um, so there's a, I think that at some point it's worth looking at whether or not like the, 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 the usefulness of pathology, you know, in terms of the languaging around things like narcissism, borderline personality, like, like what does that, how does that help us? How does that hurt us when we're thinking about client populations, when we're thinking about each other, ourselves? How does having those labels maybe limit the way we interact with patients, with each other, um, you know, when we're at, you know, and, and even having these kind of social mythologies around um, a certain, you know, client populations where there are these labels? How does maybe receiving the label um, or getting the label, you know, how does that change things? Um, how does maybe on the, on the, practitioner and how does getting a client that has been diagnosed as, you know, narcissistic or whatever, how does that impact how you see and receive? Because I think some of what you said about what Marsha Linehan's perspective was about it just being a judgment and a pattern of behavior, you know, I think there, it, there is something interesting to explore about. Do we all contain all of these patterns to some degree or another? And, hmm. you know... And then does, if we look kind of at the biosocial model, you know, model where maybe our environments are 
making those patterns or tendencies more or less pronounced? Um, yeah. And how does maybe that perspective shift or not how we approach um, treatment? So I think there, there's that, that mm -hmm. could be really interesting. And then just also on a very, very simple level, you know, when you talk about models, um, models of thinking about um, treatment models or whatever it is, you know, for someone that's coming into this, and, and this you might want to disregard for the time being, but it might be worth at some point just being like, well, what, what, are, what, are, what is a model? What are the different models, like treatment models or perspectives or whatever? What do I mean when I say that? And, and how do they differ? How do they arise? That's, that's maybe not for today or the next few, but I do right. think it's something that like as a, as a more, if we're, as we are trying to bring in more, more of the, um, you know, more, more of the general population into this conversation that's typically yeah. for specific, um, you know, specialists or professionals to, to have that conversation. I think that's a really, I mean, we could jump all the way into here <laughs> because this is so interesting, but so I'll just say a brief thing about it, but I'd like us to come back to it in a more concerted way because um, I'll just, for example, Many, many years ago, when I was first running an inpatient program for personality disorders, <clears throat> I can remember one of our patients um, who was very challenging to work with. And we brought in a consultant who was a specialist in borderline personality disorder. And that person interviewed that patient and then talked about that patient. And it, and it all was coherent it all made sense. And what happened in the interview did exemplify what the model was, the particular psychoanalytic model about borderline personality. Later in that person's treatment, we had an expert at, the, at our unit one day on dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality, in other words. And that person interviewed some of our patients, including that same patient, and I saw the interview and then talked with that person afterwards. And it was the same patient, but now they were dissociative identity disorder. And a lot of the same phenomena were explained in a very different way. Yes. Then you end up, and then, and then the third time that happened, I should write this up as a, as a case report because it's yes. so interesting about models, is that somebody came who was an expert in PTSD. Actually, it was Judith Herman from Boston. And we had her for the day talking to us and interviewing some of our patients. And she interviewed this patient and then talked about from a model of PTSD and trauma, how would you understand this person and interviewed the person. And it was really as if you're taking the same person, looked at three different points of view, three different models, three different experts, three different interviews. And you'd say, holy cow, how could this be the same person? Because the models carry with them so many explanations and so many assumptions that are built in that as soon as you say this person meets the criteria for this or this person fits our model in this way, you already you've recruited, you know, 30 percent of your assumptions are already in the back of your mind. You don't even know it. But you start having a biased point of view yeah, about the individual. Confirmation bias is so strong for all of us, and and some of the implicit bias that we bring with us just about you know forget forget the forget the you know the more um, 
the more descriptive and formal models that we bring, but then we are we already have there's these cultural models that we have maybe mm. about these different pathologies or um, symptomologies or whatever that we bring in about like okay this was this is this is what it means to be working with someone with you know DID versus PTSD versus borderline and and even without you know formal training or whatever maybe we're more or less receptive maybe you know maybe we're bracing for difficulty and mm-hmm. you know if you look at how most people that are that are practicing artists would describe and define themselves which you know is there there are many overlaps and similarities but because the environment is one that's nurturing is one in where maybe eccentricities are more celebrated and um if not encouraged that that this those same characteristics that are evidence of abnormality in one Mm -hmm. situation are evidence Mm -hmm. of genius in another and Mm -hmm. so i think it's just i think it's so so important to think about and talk about and look at because we do create reality with you know our with our perspective and so Mm -hmm. um and then you know and the way that as a and i think as an expert as a doctor as someone in a position of power when you give someone a diagnosis you either help them make sense of their reality or you kind of condemn them to a you can to a to kind of a, a narrow reality of being broken i mean it's possible so there are consequences of that and it can follow you for your life mm-hmm. just something you know just something to talk about and think about you know and and as you and i've had many conversations before and hopefully in a future podcast we'll get more into this but the difference between a right brain perspective on the yes. world and a left brain perspective the left brain uh, tends to categorize things yes uh, in a way that helps you solve a problem. So you, if you ca- tend to categorize things, then you see a person yes. and your your left brain takes that person and brings it into your brain and forms a representation of that person that fits a category. And then, and then you interact with that person as if they are the category. Yes. And they actually aren't the category. They're actually a particular person and they might even be a different person than they were yesterday in some ways. Yes. And and then um, and the right brain tends to see a particular instance as a particular instance. Right. So and looks at the whole being. That and looks at the whole being and looks yeah. at the context of the being and looks at lots of things like that. So, yeah, I think it's really um, the DSM diagnostic oh, that, I think manual. Whole, yes, I'm really... I mean. The DSM-5 diagnostic manual is a manual of categorization. And so somebody who uses it well has to have that capacity to put it on the shelf and interact with the particular person and try to wipe out some of those categorical assumptions. And I think that especially is true of something like narcissistic personality, which has a pretty bad name. Maybe that not the worst in the world. Antisocial probably has the worst in the world, and maybe borderline uh, is worse than a narcissistic. But well, you know, it depends who you are. Um, so anyway, I want to talk some about a narcissistic personality disorder. First so of hello, all, listeners. Hello. Oh, right. We. I guess we've begun. Oh, first, any of you who have watched watched on YouTube any of the podcasts would recognize my hat 
which um, Nicole said was gray at one point. I just want you to see it's pretty much silver, but it is gray. It's sort of grayish. I said it was right. great. Oh, oh, look how, oh, look how I misunderstood that. So okay. anyway, so I'm not, I don't have it on today. And, you know, when I started wearing it about five podcasts ago, after a long hiatus, I wore it and I explained then that I didn't know why I was wearing it. Uh, I mean, I knew I put it, no, some, it isn't like someone else put it on my head. I put it on my head. But I didn't, I didn't understand where it was coming from. And then I thought, well, I should just wear it until I understand. And so now I realize there's going to be more than one understanding. But one of the understandings that I have today, because of the topic we're going to talk about, I started to think that this hat is a narcissistic accessory. That I, I saw myself, before we started back on this series of podcasts, I watched some of my previous podcasts and I I just thought, I am so boring. I mean, I just thought, this is like, uh, I, I should be more exciting or interesting than I am. That isn't what, the, the feedback I get, but of course I get selective feedback. People write me and say positive things sometimes, but I, th I thought, well, this hat, maybe this hat will be like a, a little exciting add-on to my relatively bald head and, uh, and that that might make a difference. So I'm, I just decided to not put it on today or I could put it on the... But so that I just want to say, we all have narcissistic accessories to try to enhance our self-esteem. Well, let me say a little more um, before we get into the formal, you know, aspect about narcissism and narcissistic disorders. Um, for over 30 years, I've been teaching workshops on DBT, on borderline personality disorder, and in the past on, on uh, transference-focused psychotherapy, you know, uh, object relations theory and things. So, you know, I, I've got, I've, I have a whole routine of doing teaching workshops. And, um, and everybody who sees me in workshops thinks, oh, he's, he's pretty good. He's, he's a pretty decent workshop teacher and he knows what he's talking about and he sounds rather like comfortable with it and everything. Let me tell you, and there may be some of you could identify with this in your own lives, wherever you work or wherever you teach or even in personal relationships. If I come off of a workshop day, go down to Brooklyn, let's say, or over to other places where I teach, like Italy or Sweden or some of my favorite places to teach, um, and then somebody comes up afterwards and says, oh my God, that was just the best workshop. You just transformed my life or something like that. I just walk away feeling like beaming inside, like, oh, thank God, I'm, I'm worthwhile. I'm doing something valuable. I made a connection. I changed a life. I illuminated an idea. And it's kind of exciting. And I feel a little quality of euphoria, like, yes, yes, I'm doing the right thing. You know, I, 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 it's good that I'm not an NBA basketball player where I would have really been like a third rate thing. And I thought, I feel good. On the other hand, if I finish a workshop and somebody writes in their evaluation, usually people don't say these things out loud, but when they write evaluations and they write and say, yeah. you know, I've heard other, other people talk about this that actually had much more interesting things to say. Jesus, you know, or, or as, a, the heart. as happened in Minnesota, can, can you not tell us about this topic without using four letter words for, for goodness sake. 
I mean, and, and then I feel like, oh my God, I didn't know I used that many four-letter words. I mean, and, and things can happen where it just destroys my whole evening, my day, and sometimes beyond that day. And it's those remarks that I remember. So these all have to do with sort of a, the spectrum of narcissistic features that I have. I can be elated if I get a little approval, if I get a little positive feedback, mm -hmm. and I can be devastated or hurt. It depends on what it is and how much I care about it. I have to tell you that the person I did the most workshops with early in my career, who I've talked yeah. about in a previous podcast, Cindy. Yes. When she and I used to finish our intensive workshop day, and we would look through the evaluations, and there'd be maybe <laughs> 50 or 60 or 80, and we'd sit there after the workshop. Everybody's gone. Yeah. And we'd sit and read through them one at a time. And the ones that, that we didn't like, we would make into paper airplanes. I and knew then, that was what I just knew you, you were going to say that. I knew it. How did, did I know? Yeah. You don't know. Maybe I've said it before. I no, probably you haven't. Have. I just no, knew it. You just knew that. We would take I them and it. with great joy, throw them across the room. And though that was quite fun to do that, it also <laughs> captured a, 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 a sort of minor league pathological way of coping with criticism because criticism can be so helpful. And yet we took it in that way and, uh, and, and we would just deal with it that way. And we knew we were going to deal with it. And we would have fun doing that and say, yeah. oh, well, that, that criticism sucks. And then we'd throw, that, throw it out there, right? So as a workshop teacher, just like in life in lots of situations, you're very exposed to feedback from other people. Of course, that's true even like in a dating situation or as a new member of a group or going to a new school or... Whatever it is, you're just you're, being a freaking human being. Just being a freaking human being. You're just like you're you're alert to how am I being received? How am I coming across? Unless you're just immune to that, and people have more or less immunity, right? Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that when we talk about narcissism, I wanted to start there because I don't want to start with saying, you know what narcissism is? Narcissism is some terribly pathological thing that that severely disordered people, uh, some of whom are in hospitals, some of whom are dead, and some of whom are running the world, uh, have, and they're pathological and they should be eliminated or something. No, it's, it's everyday stuff. It's everyday stuff. And it can be unbelievably painful. You know, these are like, for some people, getting a little criticism after workshop would be like a speed, a speed bump. And for on the road and for other people, it's hitting a brick wall and it's like, I can't go on. I can't go on. I can't do this anymore. I have to give up my whole idea of who I am. So those are things that have to do with how resilient are you? How resilient is your self-esteem? And narcissism is all about self-esteem. It's all about, am I a good person? Am I okay? Am I likable? Am I competent? Am I good at what I do? And that can fluctuate hour by hour and day by day. And some people have a very stable sense of they're okay and they get some criticism and they take it in and they try to make use of it. It hurts a little bit, but it's just a little bit. Other people who are including very competent people, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of criticism can be destroy them for the time being. So that's what narcissism is. And, and then there's healthy narcissism 
and then there's pathological narcissism. Mm. So just okay. to, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you as the yeah. spokesperson for you know the regulars. Um, so you're saying it's a bit about like self-concept. So like if if my self-concept, if, if how I see myself is dependent on, or if I attach my sense of self-worth to getting external validation um, about my project, about my outfit, about something like that. If, if I believe that my sense of self is, is somehow the same as the, this thing that I'm looking for validation about, then I'm more likely to be, it's, there's, there, like that there's that, that, then there's some vulnerability because I've attached my self-worth to this external barometer. Right. Yes. Yes. So, you, you know, so narcissism and sort of an investment in self, of course, self is made up of a lot of sub-selves, right? So your self is made up of your appearance, of your sense of your body integrity. It's made up of your intelligence and what you, th your images of yourself, your images of your intelligence, your images of your talent, your images of your power, your images of your likability, all of these things. So any one of these things can become loaded with importance. Mm -hmm. So if I think that um, the, reason I'm a the reason I'm a person who's worthwhile in the world is because I'm beautiful, and that then somebody doesn't think I'm that beautiful, uh, yeah, I have a lot attached to that. It, my sense of self has just gotten attacked. If I don't care that much about, if somebody comes up and says, God, you look sort of ugly today, or you have a lot of food that seems to have landed on your shirt, and you know, and you go out in public. Actually, just my wife just said this to me the other day. She said something like, how do you feel if people see that if you've spilled food on your shirt or your pants? I say, actually, I barely care. And yeah, because other people are care. really different that way because I care quite a bit. I'm going to, I'm going to be <laughs> yeah. straight up about that. Like, well, yeah, you do wear more makeup than I do. I do wear That's more true. makeup than you do. And I, I spend a little bit more time on my hair than you do. Um, <laughs> That's true. So I, I must say that, and if I do a little dribble, I don't want anyone to know about it. I will be quite, quite embarrassed. Mm. But if I spell something wrong when I'm writing, Mm -hmm. Somehow I developed, probably beginning in third grade, the idea that I wanted to spell really well. So if I spell something wrong when I'm writing a report now, and somebody gets back and says, well, I liked your report, though, by the way, there was a typo, or, or there was Ooh. a misspelling there. I, I, I carry that with me in a way that I wouldn't care if they said that I spilled a whole lot of, a whole bowl of split pea soup on my shirt. Oh, I'd say, big deal. I mean, all right, people spill stuff on their shirt. But people misspell too. But so we're, we're very yeah, attached. I was a champion speller as a kid. You I were. I that with my eyes closed. I was like an extraordinarily good speller. So someone could be like, you misspelled something. And I would be like, oh, well, oops. Oh, you mean you, it, that was not a, correct. that was not me. a, it, I wouldn't take it personally. I know I'm a great speller. But, but what if you did spell something wrong? Would that be a, well, a deep so insult? It, no, because I'm so confident in my innate gifts as a speller. 
Okay. It, it, it wouldn't mean a thing to me. So look at that. This is another point about narcissism is that you can be very secure in certain aspects of yourself and you can be very insecure in other aspects. And, you know, and, and people who have narcissistic disorders sometimes can be very talented in one area of their life. And it's been focused on since they were a child. Oh, you're a brilliant actor. Oh, you're a beautiful person. Or you're a talented artist. Oh, my God. He, you know what? He was reading the world according to Garp when he was two, you know, or something like that. It's like, so you, you grow up with this enhanced sense of this is special about me. This is what I'm good at. And that now becomes both your ticket to being worthwhile. And it also becomes the place where you could become really knocked down. So yeah. um, it is, if only we were all born and grew up in a way where we felt like we're okay. The, the, I'm okay, you're okay. okay. Yeah, we're all okay. A bit, that isn't actually the way most of it is, at least it's certainly not been my experience. And, and I think... So, so I, I guess this is a long lead-in to narcissism, and I wanted to put it this way because a lot of things I've seen recently written about or talked about on YouTube, there's a lot about narcissism, and what you hear rather quickly when you listen to these things are the categories. You hear the underlying psychological structure of narcissism, and then you believe, oh, well, that's what it is. That isn't what it is. That's the roadmap. That's the construction. That's the model of what narcissism is. But the experience of narcissism is different than the model. And sometimes perfectly capable people that you think of as perfectly normal have intense issues about their self-esteem that you would never know. And other people, they wear it on their sleeve. It's obvious that they feel insecure. They ask you 40 times, do you like me? Do you think I'm good? Do you like me? Do you think I'm good? Am I pretty? Am I smart? Am I talented? And those people you know are having an issue trying to maintain their self-esteem. Others do you, you don't like realize. Me? What? Do you like me? <laughs> so, like, like, is that, if that, are we in a role play or is this like... <laughs> no, really, do you exactly. like me? Do you think I'm okay? No, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Go exactly. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Exactly. Are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? Are you mad at are me? You sure? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you, are you Are you okay? Was I good at what I did? And And those things are all, I want to tell you, those are all things within the normal spectrum yes. of behavior and anxiety. So we aren't all just walking around like well-insulated, uh, you know, stable, secure mm -hmm. people with integrity and confidence. No, we're not. Like even the ones that look great at what they do. I mean, I've worked with some brilliant people in my life within the world of psychology, psychiatry, mm -hmm. and elsewhere. And, you know, everywhere you go, even brilliant people are like extremely, you know, you've worked with people who are actors and stuff too. Yeah. It's like, you know, I don't know as much about that world, but you, but they get in the news enough that you see some pretty harrowing stuff. doesn't matter what stuff. you do. I think people are, are fragile human walking around wanting to be cared about and needing validation and all the things. I don't think we're, no one's ever immune from the human condition. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So when we get to, to getting to the point where something is considered more problematic, like what's pathological narcissism? Mm -hmm. I think like other things in, in diagnosis, something is pathological when it begins to hurt your life. 
when it begins to disrupt your relationships or it begins to hurt your work or hurt your sense of self, you know, so it beyond a certain threshold, like let's say, what is pathological drinking? You know, because somebody has a glass of wine a night, that isn't necessarily pathological drinking. Someone else who has a glass of wine a night could be pathological drinking if it leads them to be just, you know, disrupted all the time. They're so intoxicated they can't make sense of things. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a matter of degree. But pathological narcissism by now, and this is different than when I started learning about it around 1980, 81, 82, um, and maybe before that in... in uh, in studies, but I'm talking about clinically. Now, it seems to take the form of mainly two poles of experience. One pole is the pole of grandiosity. So that's like pathological grandiosity. Mm -hmm. The other pole is the pole of vulnerability. And so it's pathological levels of vulnerability. And some people go back and forth with these two poles. They really are go back and forth. And some people are sort of more rooted in the pathological grandiosity. They, they're so grandiose. They're so self-invested. They have such high views of themselves and exaggerated senses of their own abilities or their own importance or their own influence that they think they are, you know, important figures in history when no one outside their neighborhood knows who they are. I mean, and so there are people that have exaggerated sense of self-importance, exaggerated senses of, of how many people care about them, exaggerated senses of their influence on the world. Uh, and, and, and so there's, there's that extreme, and that extreme can lead to great dysfunction in life, but it doesn't necessarily lead to obvious dysfunction. I mean, we have a former president who yeah. will go unnamed, uh, but who has been talked about, as everybody knows, on TV and in the and in the world, in the internet and newspapers, as having pathological narcissism, mm -hmm. and uh, he's a perfect case example of somebody who, whatever you think of his level of competence and whatever you think of his policies and whatever you think of his impact on the country, there's no question that he has exaggerated senses of his genius of his uh, looks, of his power, of the number of people who watch him when he goes and speaks. Uh, and, and he goes to great lengths about these things because he has, he's sort of at that end of the spectrum of pathological grandiosity of investing That's himself. That's an interesting thing though. I mean, because he did, he did against all odds also become president. I know, I know. So it, it, and I think it's a good example of how people who are very accomplished even world histories in world, in the world, were in world history, um, who've made a difference. That doesn't mean that they didn't have pathological grandiosity. I mean, so they might have. So what makes it disproportionate to reality? I mean, when you are the leader of the free world, what yeah. makes your self-involvement disproportionate to well, reality? Look, I mean, I think there's some interesting things with the January 6th, you know, where where you could say that maybe there was a value issue there. It's just it's an interesting thing because it is, it is interesting. But I'll tell you, like, let's say you're a third grade teacher in the town I grew up in, in Oregon, Albany, Oregon. I still remember my third grade. Mrs. Lowell was my third grade teacher. You know, this was a 
it was, she was important to me because my second grade teacher, Mrs. Ruffner, who I had a crush on, got married during second grade, and it was not to me. And I was, was just still recovering from that. And Mrs. Lowell was this solid third grade teacher, right? So what if, so I would say she had a high level of competence. She was a good teacher. She was liked by her students. She had a good reign. If she, though, said, you know what? I'm the best teacher that ever taught third grade in history. You know, you might say, and then she said, I've now influenced millions of children when actually she has 23 kids in her class mm -hmm. each year. Or I am, I'm being paid, by the way, millions of dollars to be a third grade teacher. Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, there would be realistic things that are true accomplishments. And then there would be her exaggerated sense of her importance or her appeal. I mean, when Donald Trump would say this many people were at my inauguration right. and way more than were at Obama's ever, he was just wrong. I mean, that was just unrealistic. And, and when he said other things similar, it was unrealistic. When he said, I have huge hands and Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or whoever it was has tiny hands. I think all of these things are like overdoing it so that he and, had real accomplishments. And, I know this is going to be really annoying for me, but like, and there's this <laughs> idea that, that by, but because he so repeatedly enunciated his magnificence. Yeah. That, you know, there's, there's a bit of a, you know, the more you say it, the fake it till you make it thing that perception, I think he was acutely aware of perception that, you know, there might have been some degree, I don't know that he's super brilliant that way, but that there might have been some degree of strategy there um, and some degree of really wanting to control the narrative. So there's a propaganda element there. And so if somebody were to be doing, to make those choices, to make those statements from a posture of wanting to be politically dominant, yeah. you could say, okay, well, maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're a demagogue or maybe you're, you know, um, a really uh, yeah, yeah, problematic yeah. person, but is that narcissism? Well, or is a pathological narcissism? You mean? Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I think you're making a good point and it's why actually it's a, it's a case in point of why in fact people should not diagnose somebody who have never met them. Because uh, when you consider somebody's a politician and that this can be a political strategy, in fact, he's, he's reputed to have learned it from Roy Cohn a long mm. time ago. And that he was that this kind of idea that if you just keep saying something, people will believe it. And other world leaders have done this, too. So you could say maybe this is deliberately a strategy. Maybe it's unconsciously a strategy. Maybe he just has a good feel for a crowd and therefore he knows the right things to say. And that's a certain skill. And all of that could be true. Therefore, it wouldn't be fair from a distance, actually, to diagnose him. However, as he stands out for the purposes of this talk, of this podcast, I would say that these features are examples. And if you knew him personally, and uh, he acted that way one-on-one, -on -one, uh, even after you got to know him, and he talked about that, and and talked about himself that way in many different realms, you'd be more confident that this is really uh, an over-the-top 
way to regulate self-esteem. Like, and the need for constant admiration, constant loyalty from everybody, and the reaction to people who give even the slightest criticism or lack of loyalty that he trashes them in different ways. Those are all go along with this idea that I have this self that's this big, that's huge, and if you think it's any smaller than that, you're an asshole and you should be shot. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that goes along with the picture. So the more you have of that kind of data in person with the people you know, rather than someone who's a public figure. Right. So I when you talk about safe. this polarity between grandiosity and vulnerability, to me, the, the hyper-reactivity that is emblematic of, you know, Trump when he's, you know, banging or pulling out the tablecloth or, you know, throwing ketchup on the wall or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, or, or just that in general, like if you think of the, the kind of stereotype of, of a narcissist who can't tolerate um, anything less than constant adulation, that, that that really is an indicator of deep vulnerability. So mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm assuming you'll, you'll tell me, but that, that these, these two poles are really always in a dance and maybe one is more prevalent than the other, but, um, but the grandiosity isn't really rock solid. If it were, then, then it would be harder to puncture and the reaction wouldn't be so explosive. Mm-hmm. Well, I do, I do think there are people in the, of these two poles, pathological grandiosity versus vulnerability. I do think that there are people in the grandiosity pole who have more of that, who actually are more stable in life, who actually do accomplish more in life, who actually do get things done uh, and actually are mostly in a better mood than the person who's always vulnerable and always worried about the next thing they're going to say and whether it's going to be good enough. Um, So I do think there are pathologically grandiose people uh, where it works more or less. It's a, it's a, I mean, from a psychoanalytic perspective, which is just one of the models, especially the object relations model or psychoanalytic model, it's, you'd say that pathological narcissism is a structure that is a defense against a feeling of inferiority, inadequacy, a defense against envy, a defense against painful emotions. And yet, for some people, that defense works pretty darn well for a very long time. They get through life, more or less, unless it breaks down, uh, pretty good. And so there are pathological grandiose people, you might say, or people who have more of that pattern, and it's more stable. It's more likely to be more stable than the person because there's other people who are also uh, suffer from narcissistic distortions or problems, self-esteem problems, where they're just worried every time they speak that it's going to be terrible, that they're, they're not good at what they do. And yet they, they care just as deeply as the pathologically grandiose person. They mm-hmm. care just as deeply about it. It's just that they feel they always fall short. And uh, so they're suffering from a sort of a more hidden version of pathological narcissism. It's the vulnerable type. And like I said at the beginning, there are some people who do flip back and forth between the two, or it's more obvious, but there are some people who get enough adulation, enough support, enough realistic accomplishments. They're, they're talented enough 
and certainly in the field of entertainment and acting and stuff, you get certain people who are incredibly talented, but then when you read their biographies, they were very insecure. You get great piano players like Rudolf Serkin, yeah. who it's written about that before every concert, he throws up for his whole career. He would be yeah, so anxious about how he was going to do. And then he would play with no question, brilliant, one of the great pianists yeah. in history. So, so these things can be hidden. By the way, I want to say one more thing. I don't want to just use Donald Trump as a sort of a case example in point because there are people who might be out doing the work, the work of God, the work of the people, the work of morality, whatever it is. They're suffering and sad. they're sacrificing themselves, who could also have severe pathological narcissism, but it just doesn't show up in the same way. They're showing up that they are they're thinking of themselves as being almost like God himself. And they're, and they're including the humility. So humble people. Well, that comes up a lot in cult, like with cult leaders. And I mean, even in the in the yoga communities, I think that there is mm. a bit of that um, almost like rock star spirituality quality mm. where it's about, you know, I am the guru, I am the... The generous giver, but there's but there's an instability um, or a you know a, a need to receive that constant feedback and reinforcement okay. of okay. you know the good enoughness, which is which is really interesting because it does I think it does show up a lot in spiritual communities. Mm. You know, and um, and one of the things that happens in those some of those communities, I, I don't know the innards of this because I don't know any of these people myself, but having read accounts sometimes that we all have had access to, um, you, you get somebody who's a leader. So their, their narcissism, whether it's healthy or not, has been fueled by the fact that they've got an admiring cult of people. Okay, Now their narcissism, you might say, is working. If they have feelings of inferiority that they're coping with, they're actually defending against them quite successfully by having, you know, a hundred people say, God, thank God for you. You know, thank God for you. I'm, I'm, I'll be, give you anything. And then you start to see them taking advantage of people. Now, now you have another feature that's actually in DSM-5 about pathological narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder that people ex can exploit this. And they can think that they're outside the usual rules. Uh, they can take advantage of people. They could like have sex with everyone in the cult. Yes. They could ask everybody to hand over their first son uh, to them in the cult. They could have to have everybody, you know, and you get sometimes you see, you know, with things like Scientology sometimes gets written about in this way. And I don't know the inside story about it, but it's sort of like, so I do think you get some leaders who very effectively mobilize a group of people or even a small segment of society who it's working for them. It's working towards their goals, but they're, they're also, it's based on their constant work of getting admired, getting supported, having loyalists, um, and uh, taking advantage sometimes of people. And that's where I think you start to see the border of pathological narcissism and antisocial features. Um, and so you get, you know, an overlap there. So, so yeah, it's very, I, I appreciate the things you're bringing up because 
these things are often not brought up. If you just listen to a talk, it sounds much more canned. It sounds much more clear. You start with DSM-5 and say, well, there's these nine characteristics. And you hear them and you say, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know somebody like that. It's, and it all falls together. And you think, yep, yep, that's the pathologically grandiose person. It's not me, but it's someone out there. And, and yet it's more complicated than that. There are all kinds of variations of people who are grandiose in their view of themselves. And, mm -hmm. and it's out of... And it's partly realistic and it's also not realistic. And so where you draw that line is not so simple. And especially if you don't actually know the person. Um, and some people are, are pathologically narcissistic in one setting, but then you get them in another setting and they aren't necessarily pathologically narcissistic. You think, wow, this person here is pretty mutual, reasonably empathic not taking advantage of people, but then you put them out in a big audience and it mobilizes their insecurity, which then mobilizes their narcissistic structure and they come across as uh, exaggerating their self-importance. So, huh. so there, it's a, it's a complicated area. Yeah. But, um, so, so just to return to where I was and you do have pathologically grandiose people or patterns, let's call it patterns, because you can't define the whole person as that. And then you've got uh, people who are more vulnerable, but they tend to use narcissistic patterns to cope with their vulnerabilities. Saying, no, I'm really good at this, when actually they sort of don't feel that way. And, and, and they try to dress it up. All right, now, it's a big jump from what that is to what I want to say next. Um, so everybody take a deep breath. We'll follow you. We'll go. And there. take a, a drink of Diet Coke from me. <laughs> Back to um, my own training. I worked with uh, Otto Kernberg for uh, the first many years of my adult career. Even before I worked for him directly, in New York, I studied him. And one of the reasons I went to New York to work for him was because I really loved his way of thinking about things, uh, about personality disorders. And so I learned a lot about his thinking and it's still very prominent in the world, which is in, amazing in itself. Um, he's very smart. He has uh, written a ton. Um, he's still giving lectures. Um, you can still find him all over YouTube at this point, talking about pathological narcissism. And for and sure, he those came, of us who don't know, he was a psycho. Oh, he is a psychoanalytic good. therapist. He's or a, a psych psychoanalytic doctor um, in transference-focused psychotherapy, right? You right. He he's a doctor, mm -hmm. uh, psychiatrist, mm -hmm. uh, whose specialty became personality disorders whose career or his he's best known for his work on borderline personality and then narcissistic personality and actually even going further with looking at how narcissistic personality um people with those those patterns become leaders in large organizations including political organizations and and what the structure of those organizations was like because 
they were led by a narcissistic leader and, and what that requires of the organization. Yeah, this would be an area you'd be interested in. He's, Ooh, he wrote that. a fair amount about that that's less publicized. Um, and so Kernberg uh, was a psychoanalyst um, and a particular branch of psychoanalytic theory called object relations theory. Object relations theory is based on the idea, thank God we have GPSs now to navigate the universe because it's a good metaphor. Because, because, because it's the roadmap of the mind. Uh, object relations theory is the roadmap of the mind that says when you are a ch young child, uh, an infant, and then a toddler, you, have, you start to develop images of the self that you carry in your mind. Like, what are you like? Images of other people, what are they like? And emotions that link the two. So the basic building block of the roadmap in object relations theory that Kernberg applied was a, a self-representation. You might say, I'm a victim. I'm mostly a victim in life. And then an object representation. You might say, other people mostly persecute me. So you have an image of yourself as a victim, image of another person as a persecutor, and then you have fear as a linking affect, a linking emotion. Okay, so you've got this little... That was the most little... succinctly I've ever heard that explained. Oh, good. Um, so you've got these little building blocks, and the mind, from their point of view, from Kernberg and object relations theorists, which go way back to England and, and, uh, and with certain people that aren't worth mentioning now, but... Mm -hmm. Um, that, that's a way of understanding how the mind works and what you have to do as you grow up. You, you, you start to have these self-representations and then you have to realize that some of the self-representations are going to be positive. Like, oh, I feel good. I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. Or I did a good job. And you're going to have other self-representations that are negative. That say, oh, life sucks. This is terrible. I'm I did terrible a really bad person. job. I'm a terrible person. Bad Nobody likes me. me. Right. So there's good me's and bad me's swimming around in one's internal world. And then there's good objects and others object means other people. Mm -hmm. There's good objects and there's bad objects swimming around in that world. And one of the jo jobs when you're becoming two and three and four years old becomes that you have to protect the good things. Otherwise, the good objects and the good selves become overtaken by the negatives, and then you have a, you're devastated. So the idea is, in, in the mind, what do, you, what do you do so that you feel like you're not actually always in danger of having these negative, this is like a video game inside the mind yeah. when you're like two years old, is going on between the good world and the bad world. And, and yet, I think that video games actually come from this rather than the other way around. So you've got these things going around there, and you've got, uh, now, now how do you protect the good? So one way you protect the good is what uh, Kernberg and object relations people call splitting. You keep apart the good ones and bad ones. So you say, if somebody treats you badly on a given day, you say, that's a bad person. The same person three days later is nice to you. You say, that's a good person. Now you've got a good person and a bad person who's actually the same person. This is challenging if you're stuck there because you're so frightened 
that you only want to preserve the good person. Right. You, what if what happens if they become the bad person again? That's right. And it could happen any moment from your right. point of view. And so unless unless you actually unless you're the environment you grow up in pretty much nurtures you in a protective way and gives you reasonable experiences and you start to good feel world, bad world. That's right. There's a good world and bad world. So you and and so when you're going through this, this is the explanation, the beginning of the explanation of what makes people from that point of view have borderline personality organization, the organization that Kernberg called borderline personality, because you're always splitting and you're you're going back and forth between idealizing people and then devaluing people, idealizing, devaluing. There's the good people. There's the bad people. There's the good you. There's the bad you. And you've got to cope with this You never dilemma. get to relax. You never get to relax. You wake up on a given day and you wonder, am I going to be a good person today? Am I going to be with good people? And you oh. see your mom has a bad look on her face. She's right, in a so bad you gotta mood. You've got to manage. You've got to manage. you got to go, oh, do I have to be the good self? The bad? Like, how are you going to manage? It's constant. That, that's, it sounds exhausting. So, it's, so, so you're, this is going on. And, 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 and so this can result... If you don't start to be able to integrate, and this is the main idea in the treatment of transference-focused psychotherapy, Kernberg's model of therapy, is that the ultimate goal is that you integrate the good and bad objects, and you integrate the good and the bad self-representations. And then you have a more realistic view. You say, you know what? So-and-so is pretty nice to me sometimes, but on other days they're not so nice to me when they're in a bad mood or when I do something they don't like. And you start to feel like, oh, all right, that's the same person. And you develop a more complex and more realistic view of human beings. That's you don't kind of think okay-ish. Just okay-ish, yeah, one of your favorite terms. <laughs> exactly. You get okay-ish people rather than good people and bad people. You say, all right, well, they're, they're having a bad day. So then you get a more realistic view of the world. And it's more what they call integration is the treatment of splitting. So you overcome splitting in the internal world by integrating the good self and the bad self and say, you know, sometimes I'm pretty good and sometimes I'm not so good. Sometimes I feel better, sometimes I feel worse. And you start to realize that's reality. None of us feel good all the time. None of us are with good people all the time. I mean, people are, it's complicated. So yeah. that's not an easy thing to do from the beginning of life. So that's the that's the course, and if you can't that if you can't get that integration, which is considered central in that model of thinking, then things keep falling apart. You have somebody says a bad thing to you, and you're devastated, and then you have to hurt yourself, or you want to kill yourself, or you start to use substances and get addicted to things, and you're sort of coping with an unimaginable and to some degree chaotic inner world of positives and negatives that are hard to regulate. Okay? Yep. Now, let's jump from there. What does that have to do with narcissistic personality? We're only, this is model number one that we're talking yeah. about. What it has to do with is that um, one way to cope with this unmanageable split internal world is to start to assign, so to speak, if you don't do this consciously, right. but you start to assign all the good self-images to yourself. I mean, that sounds very skillful. I'm not going to lie. That's At right. least it, on the it, surface, 
seems like a pretty good bet. I know, and and you're going to tell me why I'm wrong. I know, but like, I'm like, why not? I wish I could assign all the the good things to myself. All the good things are like, yes, this is me. I'm fabulous. The The rest of the world is the problem. I'm amazing. No, and in fact, when you have the bad me that feels really bad, you decide to assign that to something outside yourself. I mean, it sounds brilliant. <laughs> I've never heard it put that way. But, um, it just seems like and it would then, be really fun for a day. But okay, you tell me why not. But no, the other part of this is then you look at all those bad selves and, or bad others and good others. And you take all of the good ones and you assign them to yourself. So all good they're qualities all in the world, they're all an extension of you. Like, look at that person's really good. It's because of my influence on them. Yeah. It's because they're imitating me. It's because they love me. It. It's because they're loyal to me. So you go out there and you say, all the good in the world is me. And all the bad in the world is out there. So other people are actually a little the worrisome. The whole world is me. And when those good people are not loyal, then it's like a part of me is betraying myself, sort of, right? I mean, that's what it sounds like. If the part that you, if what the people that you've assigned is good, do something that is bad, like, no wonder that feels so terrible. No, but I, but it doesn't see that this is where narcissism works to some degree is that once you decide that when good things happen, it's because of you, mm-hmm. but when bad things happen, it's because of what other people are doing. You just have to protect yourself from other people. You might have to put them down. You might have to disregard them. Oh, you you might have to dismiss them. them. Like garbage. You devalue them. You trash okay. them. It's sort of like so and so is a jerk. So and so, and and that helps protect your own sense of oh. that's not me. Me is good. That's they lonely. is bad. Sounds very lonely. Can be lonely, except that you are always on the lookout for those people who admire you and think that you are good. So they they can be in the inner circle. And now an inner circle and an get outer to circle. interact with another being because if the whole world is you, it's just you and you, right? You and your admirers, you and reflections of you. You're never actually having relational experiences where you're impacted by the other, it sounds like. Well, I think that you're, you're right and not quite right because okay. I, I think that you're, you're right if you just take this model the way I'm describing it, which mm-hmm. I think I would just say is like a cartoon. Okay. Because this is this is like a, an idea and a model and a cartoon. But actually, you take the person who's a pathologically narcissistic, and they are recruiting all the good stuff for themselves, including all the good ideals in the world, and say, well, Eiffel Tower, I built the Eiffel Tower. Hmm. Oh, the Statue of Liberty, I brought it to America. Oh, America's great. That's because of me. Uh, and etc uh, etc et you do all of that you're sort of you're sort of dividing up the world into the good stuff and the bad mm-hmm. stuff and you're saying the good stuff is me the bad stuff is out there i got to watch out for it. however if you go around now this is where it gets down to the actual person rather than the cartoon uh, yeah the cartoon is a model but the person actually like you sit with somebody who has a bad reputation as being pathologically narcissistic, mm-hmm. and you might have a good encounter with them where you feel like, you know what? That person does seem capable of mutuality, of mm-hmm. empathy, of compassion, of connectedness, 
I didn't realize that. I thought this person was just all narcissistic, but actually this person is not always that way. So it's not fully right. fair. In, in fact, if it was the cartoon I'm talking about, yeah. they're probably untreatable in therapy. Whereas some people with real narcissism are quite treatable in therapy, but it's sometimes slow going and you have to develop an, a good relationship as you go along. But you know, for today, we're going to stop in just a couple of minutes yeah. and, and we're just going to get through. Let's just call this model number one before we pick up next time. And model number one is the psychoanalytic object relations model, the Kernberg model. I probably haven't fully given it justice. I know I haven't. I worked with Kernberg myself many I've years. I've interrupted you too many times. It's my fault. No, there, there's, that's a problem with this particular kind of podcast is that it's almost more like a lecture uh, and and yet you've illuminated a lot of things. You've helped make it more complex and it is more complex. Um, it's not a I'm simple I'm going to ask you matter. one more question that I'm going to shut up because I think, but I, but and I'll let you finish, but I, I, as we finish up model one, like what would motivate a narcissist, like someone who's pathologically narcissistic in model one to engage in therapy? Like if, if the whole world if we're not the cartoon and the whole world is of good is an extension of me, then why why might I be motivated to do the uncomfortable work of, of therapy? Well, that's a good point because they usually don't come for therapy if it's working pretty well. They come for mm -hmm. therapy when it breaks down, when it isn't working well. They come to therapy. I mean, you, you can hear that the, the worldview of the person with pathological narcissism by this model is kind of a paranoid worldview. It's like, mm -hmm. it's sort of like I live in a castle and there's a moat around me and all the good things in the world are in my castle. Mm -hmm. And outside that moat are all those people who wish they could take it away from me, who'd want to do me in, who don't like me, who have bad ideas about me and they're evil people. And so I have to protect myself. If the moat breaks down and you start to feel like you know, my worldview is not working anymore. Mm. It used to, I used to be riding high. I used to be winning everything. I used to be on ch in charge of a lot. But now actually what happened? I, it's not working anymore. So while you start to get more depressed, as soon as somebody with pathological narcissism starts to get more depressed because they have a more realistic view of maybe I'm not the greatest. Maybe mm. some of these criticisms are true of me somehow. Maybe I'm losing my grip. It's not unusual for that person to start to have depression, even severe depression. And it's usually under those conditions that someone who's riding high with successful narcissistic functioning. Um, most people don't seek out treatment because they don't really think the therapist has that much to offer. Yeah. That, that because they're they smarter than the therapist. They already know. They're genius. I mean, it, there's course. nobody no, else to I, go I mean, to. Yeah, of course. You'd have to go to another genius. Yeah. You'd have to go like, you know, I don't want to <laughs> casually say what I was going to say, but you'd have to go find somebody else in the world who you think of as a genius. Mm -hmm. And even then, they're probably not as smart as you think you are. Uh, so I it's, a tricky, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. You, know. <laughs> you do about yourself. I do. I do. <laughs> I do. I'm sorry to laugh because, but it's no, just it's that funny. I... 
It's not that funny, really. Maybe you are the smartest. You might be the smartest person in the world. Um, you never know. Um, I you never know. But yes. Look, I know. Um, okay, this... no, okay, that was good, though. I think, that was, I think that was very interesting. Yeah. And so I want to encourage people who've, who have hung in there with this long with this kind of podcast, with this kind of teachy, teachy podcast, um, to write in any comments write in any questions, um, subscribe or have other people subscribe if you want to hear Definitely. more of these kind of things. Write reviews, five stars. Write reviews, five star reviews. And because one of the things that Nicole and I are going to do, we're going to talk about another model and then about DBT's approach to people with narcissism. But then we're also going to put in somewhere in one of the next two podcasts about this, like do some role plays uh, where one of us is narcissistic, has nar pathological narcissistic features, and then sh see what it's like to be interacting with such a person and how you might cope with that, and then talk about that. Because maybe in your life, maybe you have somebody in your family, maybe you have a partner, maybe you yourself. Maybe I know you're you. not likely to recognize it yourself, but usually we see these things other people more. But yeah. you may have, you may wonder what to do uh, when you're with such a people. Boss. You know. Yeah. So we'll, we'll try to explore that. So if you have any specific questions about it, feel free to write that in too. And we'll try to incorporate that in what we do. Thanks so we're so going to, we're good. Yes. Thanks for listening. We're going to sign off now and we'll be back at next it week. next, next week. Okay. All right. Bye. <laughs>